Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning. Open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Lamentations, and I'm serious. little five-chapter book in your Old Testament between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I'll give you a moment to find it. While you're looking it up, let me also remind you, if you do have questions um, in, the, in the midst of today's message, um, you could text those questions to this number here, um, and I'd encourage you to do that. Lamentations is not a book that we study very often. It's not a book that we, most of us know very much about. There's probably a lot of different reasons for that, but I think one of the reasons for that is that it's kind of a downer. Um, if you can judge the content of the book at all by the title of a book, we shouldn't expect a lot of sunshine and lollipops from a book called Lamentations. Um, but actually, in, in antiquity, it wasn't known as Lamentations. In ancient times, it was known by a different title, It was known by the first Hebrew word of the book. The word is ekah, and it's translated how. That's what the book was known as. But this isn't how with a question mark. This is how with an exclamation point. The word as it's used in Lamentations is full of shock. This word is full of sorrow. It's full of wonder at the destruction of a city so thorough and so complete and so devastating that the prophet Jeremiah, as he's writing this book, he can only exclaim, and this is the first line of the book, he can only exclaim, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Many of you in the room today, you remember that feeling on September 11th, 2001. You remember that feeling looking out at a cityscape And you remember that feeling of desolation, despair. You remember feeling overwhelmed by it. That that feeling begins to capture the feeling of this word how in Lamentations. This is a book, sort of like Job, this is a book of mourning. This is a book of heartbreak. This is a book of suffering. This is a book, it's sort of like one of those post-apocalyptic movies. That as Jeremiah is looking out over what used to be such the the glorious city of Jerusalem, so destroyed by the empire of Babylon, that he can just look at it and wonder at its abandonment, at its desolation. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. It's a book of mourning. It's a book of lament. And the language of lamentations kind of shocks us. It's, it's, a, it's a beautifully structured book, Lamentations. Like I said, it's five chapters long. The first four chapters of Lamentations, they all have 22 verses. And each one of those verses corresponds to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first four chapters are organized like an acrostic poem. But then that structure completely breaks down in Lamentations 5. And there's a lot of speculation as to why that's the case. But here's, here's my feeling on it. Have you ever had one of those seasons of prayer where you are just so confused, so frustrated, so angry, you don't even know what to say in your prayer. All you can really muster is, 
Ah! Have you ever had one of those seasons of prayer? That's what we get in Lamentations 5. This is a cry of desperation uttered towards God. And as beautiful as the structure of Lamentations sometimes is, the language in Lamentations is jarring. Like, for instance, Lamentations 2. It says, look at us, God. Think it over. Have you ever treated anyone like this? Should women eat their own babies, the very children they raised? Should priests and prophets be murdered in the master's own sanctuary? Boys and old men lie in the gutters of the streets. My young men and women killed in their prime. Angry, you killed them in cold blood. Cut them down without mercy. You invited, like friends to a party, men to swoop down and attack so that on the big day of God's wrath, no one would get away. The children I loved and reared are gone, gone, gone. A text like that will ruin your devotional moment, okay? They're not going to frame that text and sell it as wall art and for all Bible. Ain't nobody Pinteresting that verse. It's not going to happen. But listen, listen, if we're going to take the message of Scripture seriously, beginning to end, then it won't be very long before we cut ourselves across the sharp edges of the human experience. Scripture, as it turns out, is much more honest than we are many times. The language of lamentations is only shocking to those people who haven't really experienced true desolation and abandonment. It's only shocking to those people who have never experienced a season where they've been confused, upset, or just plain angry at God. And I'm confident in a room this size, that feeling is something that a great number of you can resonate with personally, maybe even this very moment. Listen, our experience might be different than the experience of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Our experience might be different, but the feeling of anger, the feeling of disappointment, the feeling of bitterness expressed by this book is something that a great many of us can resonate with personally. A while ago, I was asked to preach a sermon in a different setting on a very similar topic. The topic I was given for that day was learning to forgive God. Now, we know, those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, we know that forgiveness is one of the key marks of discipleship, right? We know, the gospel tells us that we've been forgiven. God has shown us grace. God has shown us mercy. God has shown us forgiveness. And so what it means to follow Jesus is that we show that same grace, mercy, and forgiveness to others. So we forgive our friends. We forgive our families. We forgive even our enemies. And ultimately, we even learn how to forgive ourselves, because of the gospel. But this topic of forgiving God was a new topic for me. What does it mean to forgive God? And so I looked in scripture to try to find examples of people who forgave God, and I was a little bit disappointed. There are a lot of people in scripture who had reason to forgive God, right? You think of Abraham climbing up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, and right as he's ready to sacrifice his son, God intervenes at the very last moment. You think of Moses, Moses who spent a good portion of his life leading Israel, always grumbling and complaining Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, 
ultimately into the promised land. And right as he's on the cusp of entering into the promised land, God says, you're not going to make it. Or you think of David as a young man told, you're going to be the great king of Israel and spends the next years and decades literally running for his life as people are trying to kill him. Or Joseph. Joseph being sold into slavery, finding his way into an Egyptian prison through no fault of his own for actually doing the right thing. And in case after case after case, here's what you don't find. You don't find, and -and so-and-so found the room in their hearts to offer forgiveness to God. No, this seems to be a modern man's dilemma. We have have sometimes such an inflated view of ourselves that only we would dare to ask, God, how many times must I forgive you? Up to seven times? We we sort of are like, um, and this reference will be lost on some of you, but some of you will like it, Um, but we're sort of like George Costanza in that old episode of Seinfeld as he's, he's getting ready for the first time in his life to experience some success. And in that moment, he has a cancer scare. And he expresses to his friend Jerry, I'm afraid that God is trying to kill me. And Jerry responds by saying, well, George, I thought you don't believe in God. And George says, well, I do for the bad stuff. <laughs> but that's kind of how we've come to regard God. God is a bully just ready ready to punish us, ready to strike us down at a moment's notice, ready just to mess up our lives. And so in our minds, we think, yeah, there might be an occasion where I might need to forgive God. But you don't really find that in Scripture. You know what you do find in Scripture a lot, though? And it doesn't take very long to find it. What you find a lot of in Scripture is anger confusion, disappointment expressed to God. You hear it all the time in the book of Psalms. The biggest group of Psalms, the largest group of Psalms are actually called lament Psalms. Psalms of confusion, frustration, disappointment, and despair uttered towards God. Biggest group of Psalms. You hear this prayed from the mouth of people like Hannah in the Old Testament frustration, disappointment. You hear it from the collective mouths of Israel. Virtually every chance they got, they were frustrated and complaining against God. You hear it uh, cried from the mouths of prophets like Elijah and Isaiah. You certainly hear it from Job. You even hear it from the mouths of the saints in heaven in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord? How long until you avenge us? Ultimately, you hear it most profoundly from Jesus himself hanging on the cross. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I gravitated towards lamentations for this message this morning because this same complaint rings all the way through this book. Chapter 2. The Lord is like an enemy. Chapter 3, verse 1. I'm the man who has seen trouble, trouble coming from the lash of God's anger. He took me by the hand and walked me into the pitch black darkness. Yes, he's given me the back of his hand over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 8. Even when I call out or cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. It's a brutally honest assessment of Jeremiah's feelings towards God at that moment. 
it seems as if asking questions of God, complaining to God, expressing frustration or even feelings of abandonment to God, it seems as if this should be understood as a common experience of, of what it means to be human. Being angry at God is a common experience in Scripture, and it's a common experience in our lives. Let's just get that out on the table. There's not a single person here, I'm confident in this, there's not a single person here who hasn't at some point or another, maybe even currently, struggled with feelings of disappointment, confusion, and anger at God. God, I just don't understand what's going on right now. I don't understand why this pain is happening, why this suffering is happening. I don't get it. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all at some point or another been in that desert period of our faith, wondering where God is at. And that's lamentations. Every one of us has been in those moments where our experience is competing with our theology and our experience is winning. So what do we do? What do we do when we are angry at God? What do we do when others around us are angry at God? Well, I think there's at least a couple, uh, what I'm going to call insufficient responses, insufficient answers. One insufficient answer is to simply walk away from God. To simply throw up our hands, say the pain is too much, the suffering is too much, disappointment is, I'm out, I'm done, I'm just going to walk away from God. And in my experience, this is the number one reason why people choose to walk away from God. It's not for intellectual reasons. It's because of the pain and the heartbreak that they're feeling. And we choose to walk away from God. And and really, it's just another form of the serpent's question to Eve, all the way back in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say that he'd take care of you? Did God really say that he loved you? Did God really say that he was a just God? Did God really say? And in those moments and in our bitterness, we take hold of that fruit, and it tastes good, at least for a while. But the problem is that in the end, it separates us from our Creator. It wrecks our lives, and it ruins any true chance of hope and joy. And in the process, if you think about it, in the process, it renders completely meaningless the suffering that caused the questions in the first place. Abandoning God in the midst of disappointment and anger doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't make the suffering stop. It just makes those things all the more meaningless. But many people choose that path. I think another insufficient answer is learning how to forgive God, as I mentioned earlier. Now, now let me clarify. Forgiving God is a good thing. I can't think of very many things that are more detrimental to our spiritual growth than harboring a long-lasting grudge against our Creator. But forgiving God, as good as it is, forgiving God might ultimately be insufficient as well. And here's the reason why. Forgiveness assumes two things primarily. It assumes, first of all, that a wrong has been committed. That's what forgiveness assumes. And second of all, it assumes that we know who the guilty party is. And both of those assumptions might be problematic when it comes to God. Let let me explain. I'll start with the second assumption first. We don't always know who to blame when bad things happen. Are you okay with that? Now, if you're like me, 
That's the very first thing that I want to do when a bad thing happens. Whose fault is it? Who can I blame? Who do I send the insurance bill to? Who's at fault here? And it's only natural that eventually I'm going to get around to blaming God because isn't God supposed to be in charge of all this anyway? So of course he's at fault. Of course he's at fault. And, And you can even get this idea from Lamentations. There's no other way to read this book than to recognize that Jeremiah is angry at God and holding him responsible for what has happened to Israel. But Jeremiah also reminds Israel that much of their pain and suffering had actually been brought about by their own unfaithfulness. In Jeremiah 1, he says, The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Later on in the same chapter, he says, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and has so become unclean. And as gruesome as it was, Jeremiah's judgment was that Israel had some, in some way brought this judgment upon herself. Now, I want to be very careful with what I'm going to say next. I want you to hear me loud and clear this morning. I'm not sa- Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all of that in every case, the trials, the suffering, the tribulation that you've gone through has just been the consequence of your own decision. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that what you're currently going through is necessarily a consequence of your own decision. All I'm saying is there are a great many moments in our lives where we suffer, where we suffer pain, where we suffer disappointment and resentment because of our own evil uh, decisions and judgments, or quite often because of the evil decisions or ignorant decisions of others that we have to deal with. All I'm saying is a lot of times we don't know who ultimately to blame for the suffering that happens. And there are, there are a lot of times where we, don't, we have to admit we don't really know who's at fault. Uh, why, why did this cancer happen? Why, why do I have cancer? Why did, why did she have to die? Why was I the one that had to lose my job? I remember um, when, when I was 17 years old, my, my sister died in a car accident on her way to church. Um, late April morning. And um, I remember after that happened, uh, people coming alongside of me, people coming alongside of my family and trying to give explanation for what had happened. I remember some very well-meaning Christians saying, you know, God allowed this to happen um, for, he allowed this to happen to test your family. Or, or I remember hearing God allowed this to happen because he needed another angel in his choir. Gag me. <laughs> don't, don't ever say that. Another angel in his choir. I had other people come alongside of me and say, you know, uh, Satan did this. This is, this is not from God. This is from Satan. Satan's trying to destroy your family, trying to rip it apart. So I remember thinking as a 17-year-old kid, that's awesome. I have the two most powerful forces in the universe allied against me. That's fantastic. I heard the cops, the cops explained the accident. They said, well, this is, it was wet. The road was wet that morning. Um, She was driving too fast. She wasn't buckled in. She was distracted while she's driving. And these things, unfortunately, they happen. So who am I to blame? Who am I to blame? Whose fault was it really? Can I tell you I gave up asking the question? I don't know whose fault it was. I still don't know. 
because it's just impossible to know, to ever be really sure who is responsible when bad things happen. And at the end of the day, I had to ask myself, does it really matter? I tried being angry at God. I really did. But it didn't get me anywhere and it brought me no satisfaction. None of the facts of the situation were changed by my anger at God. Which leads me back to the, to the first assumption. We're not always in a position to know what is best. We don't always know who to assign blame to, and we're not always in a position to know what is best. Now, on the surface of it, this sounds kind of insulting, and I hesitate to even say it. Of course I know what has happened to me is wrong. Of course I know that. How could it possibly be understood any other way? But we're not always in a position, in the best position, to judge what is ultimately for our best in any final sense. Let, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. I was having coffee several years ago with a very good friend of mine, um, and his, his uh, family was going through some, some trials, through some difficulties, which they still are, uh, re- related to the health of one of their children. And, um, and so we were talking about this situation. We were talking about the struggles that they were having. And um, along the way, we also started talking about my own family's story with my sister passing away in this car accident. And he asked me a very profound question, something that's stuck with me ever since then. He said, imagine that there were a red button placed on this table right now. And if you press the red button, all the pain and suffering goes away. So I press the red button. Uh, my family's no longer dealing with this health issue with my child. You press the red button, your sister never died in that car accident. Would you press that button? Now, how do you suppose I initially thought through that question? Of course I would. Are you kidding me? The chance to have my sister back? The chance to do away with all that pain and suffering? Absolutely, I'd press that button. But when I really started to think about it, when I I started to piece together the different points of my life, the different things that have happened in light of that accident— Everything from meeting my wife, having my children, my current career, my, even where I live, all of those things would very likely go away if I pressed that button. And it really caused me to think and to wonder, like, I don't really know in any final sense what is for my best, the way that I assume that I do. I'm sorry, I feel like this sermon offers more questions than answers, but that's just because I'm trying to be honest. Maybe what would be better for us is to talk about what to do when we're angry at God. If, If walking away from God doesn't bring about any ultimate satisfaction, if learning to forgive God isn't in itself even sufficient, what do we do when we're angry at God? Here's my first answer. Be honest with God. Learn to be honest with God. One of the lessons that I learned from a book like Lamentations is that God can handle your anger. Lamentations is not a fun book, but it's an honest book, and Israel actually wasn't embarrassed by it. Israel didn't hide it away. Matter of fact, Lamentations, think about this. It's a holiday weekend. Lamentations was one of five books in the Old Testament that Israel would actually get out once a year and sing collectively during one of their primary festivals, their feast times. So they're they're getting together for this great holiday celebration, and they get out the Book of Lamentations and they sing it together. 
They weren't embarrassed by the book. They didn't hide it away. It was important for them to remember their national lament. I want to say to you today, hear me clearly, if you're angry at God, God can handle that. God can handle your anger. God can handle your confusion, your frustration. You don't have to be falsely happy to a God who knows you better than yourself. When you're angry at God, take your anger to God and set it before him. There's a group of psalms called the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory means cursing psalms. These are are rough-edged psalms. These are psalms of anger, disappointment, abandonment. And I've come to appreciate these psalms because these psalms are also psalms of worship. God, I don't know what to do with my anger right now. I don't don't get what's going on in my life right now. I don't get why this had to happen. I don't don't understand. I'm frustrated. But I'm taking this to you. God, do something with it. in, uh, In John 11, Jesus attends a funeral. It's the funeral of one of his best friends, Lazarus. Lazarus has died. And as Jesus is going to the home of Lazarus, he's met by Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha. And they both express frustration with Jesus. If you had only gotten here sooner, you could have done something about this situation. If, why, did you, why did you delay? If you could have gotten here sooner, you could have healed Lazarus. But as it is now, he's died. And what I, what I find so interesting is Jesus doesn't rebuke them in their anger. You know what he does? It's the only time in the Gospels that we're told this. He weeps. He weeps alongside of them. In their despair, in their discouragement, in their disappointment, he weeps. God is big enough to handle your anger. The second thing that I'd say is this. Be patient with God. Be patient. I make, quite often, two uh, very common mistakes when it comes to my relationship with God. The first mistake that I make is that I assume that God's primary purpose for my life is my happiness. That God, at the end of the day, more than anything else, just wants me to be happy. And so when bad things happen to me, I get frustrated, disappointed, but God, I'm not happy. <laughs> I'm not happy. And God's up there saying, whoever told you that my number one purpose for your life is your happiness? I have something greater in store for you. You've set your sights too low. I have something greater in store for you than just your momentary happiness. I want you to be holy. The second problem that I have is that so often my pain and my suffering is so intense that it becomes impossible for me to see beyond that suffering to a greater plan and purpose to see how God might actually work in this situation and redeem this situation for his glory. Sometimes I become so nearsighted, I miss that. Romans 8, 28 and 29 um, is a verse that we hear a lot when we're angry, frustrated, or suffering. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. But we stop reading too soon, because in the very next verse, verse 29, Paul tells us what God's purpose truly is. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
that we might look more like Jesus. So here's my plea this morning. If you're feeling anger and disappointment of God, if you're going through seasons of suffering, be patient. Trust in a God who's faithful. Trust in a God who knows better than we could ever know ourselves what is for our best. Trust that in this situation, if we are patient, God will redeem it for his glory and use it to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. Be patient. The third thing that I'd say is this, the last thing, worship God. The most important thing that we can do when we're angry at God is to worship God. Most people, when they, know, when they think about the book of Lamentations, they only know one verse from Lamentations. And the only reason they know that is because we grew up singing it. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. It's interesting that this, that this Christian hymn comes in one of the deepest, darkest books of the entire Bible. Great is thy faithfulness. It's in Lamentations 3, this verse. And it's important that we understand the context of this verse. Great is thy faithfulness. In Lamentations 3, 1 through 18, 18 verses, Jeremiah refers to God with a third-person pronoun 18 times. Him, his. In other words, this is one long list of grievances. Can you believe God did this? Can you believe he did that? It's a list of, God's, of grievances against God. But then in verse 18... There's a change. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. For the first time, we have a second person pronoun. You know what's happened here? Worship. Great is your faithfulness. In the midst of my despair, disappointment, and anger, God, I remember your faithfulness through it all. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. When you're angry at God, learn to worship God. But that's hard, isn't it? When my wife and I get into disagreements, it happens. When we argue, the very last thing that I want to do personally is sit down and hash it out. Let's talk it through, okay? It's the last thing that I want to do. But it's also the most important thing for me to do. When we get angry at God, the last thing that we want to do is worship. The last thing that we want to do is to come to a place like this and lift our, lift our voice in praise. But it's also the most important thing for us to do. Listen, we don't just sing songs of joy. We don't. We also sing songs of lament. Sometimes worship comes through gritted teeth and despondent hearts. We sing, Great is thy faithfulness from the midst of the driest desert. We sing, It is well with my soul from the deepest, darkest pain. And it's in the exercise of our worship that we focus for a moment on a God who is faithful, on a God who will not abandon us. We also remember the gospel. We know that this is more than wishful thinking because 
you and I, we live on the other side of the cross. We live on the other side of the empty grave. We know that God has not been silent. We know that God has not abandoned us to our afflictions. We know that he has bore our afflictions and we have seen God's great faithfulness in the victory of Jesus. And so we worship and we hope, even in the midst of anger, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of disappointment, because we know we worship a God who has been faithful in such a way that he has not abandoned us in our pain. He has taken our pain upon himself and has defeated it. Amen? Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.